0: Let's read God's Word again, John chapter 12. Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 20 through 50. That's a unit. It stands together. I did the the big picture this week. We're going to back up and we're going to look at the individual components of this literary unit. And today, looking at verses 20 through 26. God's inerrant, infallible Word. Follow along as I read out loud. John 12, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. And where I am, there will my servant be also. if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures always. Let's pray together again. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for both the written word and for the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that you would, would keep your servant from misspeaking, that you would give us all ears to hear. There's nothing unclear about your word. We profess and believe that it is, it is clear and it is sufficient. The problem is us. We are the problem. The problem is sin that darkens our minds that plugs our ears, that dims our eyes. So we ask that you would illumine our minds, that we might see the wonderful words of life that are in this passage this morning. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, already, but particularly as you grow older, your parents... We're going to talk to you about life and about living this life. They're going to tell you things like, sweetheart, you need to be enjoying this. You need to be enjoying life. Don't fret about things so much. Even as you do your studies and they're urging you on to serious scholarship and encouraging you to do your best, They're also going to be telling you that as you do this as unto the Lord, this should bring you joy. It shouldn't be a burdensome thing. Let's don't make schoolwork burdensome. Let's remember for whom we're doing this. They're going to tell you all these things. They're going to tell you the most important thing that goes right along with all that, and that is that you need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to receive and rest upon him alone for salvation because that's the only way you can have the best life. You can't live outside of Christ. You can't live outside of his, his covenant community and have the best life. And the whole world is telling you opposite. Now, Everything I've just said is true, but I'm about to throw you a curve, but not I, the Lord himself, is throwing you the curveball. Because this passage, as with many other passages, tell us that the best life, the way we pursue everything in this life is by dying, not living. Now, parents, you get to go home this afternoon. And you get to, you get to help me as you, as you take them back to this passage and you talk about this. And you take them to, to other passages similar to Ephesians and Colossians where Paul says that we're to mortify, we're to kill, we're to put to death the things of this world, the things of flesh. Jesus says in this passage... That unless you die, you can never live. Now, he's speaking primarily and first about himself. That we then, we as his people can't live unless he died. And we can't live unless he was raised. And we can't die unless we're dead in Christ. We can only live for ourselves. We'll only be self-indulging, self-interested, self-pleasing, unless we're in Christ Jesus, unless we are dead in Christ Jesus, unless we have died with Christ Jesus. Apostle Paul goes so far to say that we have to be buried with Christ Jesus. Now, let 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 me just say this. This is not a sermon on baptism, but remember in the Middle East... When we talk about burying, we're not talking about being submerged, being immersed, put it under the ground. That's not the way they buried in that culture, and it's not the way they bury in many, many cultures around the world today. Burial has nothing to do with being above ground or below ground. It has to do with identification, being put in something, being put in Christ Jesus, in the case of Paul, Romans-wise. So... Let's look at this little passage. There's so much here. There have been so many great sermons preached on this passage. It was a temptation for me, by the way, not to do what I did many years ago on Psalm 23 and just divvy up one of what I believe to be one of the greatest sermons ever preached on this passage and just tell you that I'm, I'm using someone else's sermon this week. By the way, if you all remember back then, that was a two-part preaching of Psalm 23, and that was the hardest sermon I've ever prepared in my life, was to make someone else's mine. But I didn't, and so here we are. But I am going to quote from one of those sermons this morning. First thing, glory comes through the cross. You may have heard it said, you should have heard it said by now in your life, if you've been a Christian long at all, that glory only comes through the cross no cross no glory and Jesus is putting that into this story right here remember what we saw two weeks ago as we started on this these people these Greeks they come they want to see Jesus and Jesus immediately begins correcting them this is not about seeing me this is about faith in me this is about believing me At the end of the chapter, we saw he returns to that. If anyone wants to see me, then they have to hear my words and believe me. There is no no following Jesus by sight. There is only following Jesus properly by faith. And so he begins... They came, they asked, Philip and Andrew, come and tell Jesus, there's some people out here, they want to see you. And Jesus answers them and says, wonderful, I'd love to have them. Come on in. No, he doesn't. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, amen, amen. And he proceeds with all this, this litany in the following verses of this is what I've done, this is who I am, this is what they need. They don't need to see me. They need to trust me. They need to receive me. They need to rest upon me. They need to believe me. No doubt these people were genuine, just as people today. You know, if I could just see Jesus, if I could just, if I could just see God do things like Moses saw God do things, I don't doubt some people who say things like that are genuinely motivated. But over and over, the Bible comes back to, that's not how we live. We live by faith. Whatever is not a faith is sin. So the first thing, glory comes through the cross. Here we see the one who came from glory and desires to regain the glory of his eternal nature. He commits himself to suffering in order to attain glory. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. We're going to read an even a more impassioned plea of the son to the father in John 17 in a few months. When we get there. When the Lord praying to his father. Says Lord glorify your son I desire to be restored to the glory I enjoyed from before the foundation of the world that's his desire and here he commits himself he says it again the days at hand I'm about to sacrifice myself and in this humiliation he says here in this humiliation i 'm going to ascend to glory i 'm going to rise up from this humiliation everything we just confessed earlier from the scriptures he's going to rise from that humiliated state and he is going to be glorified and as it said in the in the larger catechism that until that time when he was raised and his 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 body that that body that is Different and yet the same, that glorified body, until that point, his entire life on this earth was lived in humiliation. The perfect one, immersed with sin, surrounded by sin, mocked by sin. I suspect we don't think about that often enough, how horrific that must have been for the eternal Son of God to live in this mess we call this sinful world. But he did. And he did it for us, for sinners, to save sinners from their sin and from our humiliation as sinners. in order to see just how marvelous the cross was and how evidently divine the design of the cross was, we have to remember who it is that is the grain of wheat. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. He's talking about himself, of course. He goes on later on in the passage to say The judgment of this world. Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the manner of death that was before him. And yet he says it in the context of saying the Son of Man... It's time to be glorified. No cross. No glory. Divine design of the cross was to take the one that was eternal, that was glory himself... And to take him as a sacrifice. We have to remember who he was. This is the one, this one, this wheat seed, this grain of wheat is the one who is the eternal son of God. This is not just another man. This is the eternal son of God. He's the eternal one. He's the one who from eternity was with the Father. Remember John 1, 1? He's the one who spoke and the sphere we call earth and everything else was formed. This is the wheat grain. He's the one who spoke and there was expanse, there was water, there was earth. Just the power of his voice. He spoke again, there was flora, there was fauna. He spoke again, there was sun, there was moon, there were stars, there were planets. And then, in a stroke of genius, as only God's genius can can bring about, in order to teach us over and over and over who we are, He takes some dirt and shaped us into the fashion of a man. And then he breathed life into that man whom we know to be the first man, Adam. And he came alive. He was body and soul. And as if that's not enough of a reminder that we're just dirt. My dad was fond of saying in his latter years when I'd say, how you doing, dad? He'd say, pretty good for a man old as dirt. That's a good place to live, folks. Remembering from whence we came. And then... He ordered the angels. He ruled the universe. He stooped down to take on flesh and suffer. He commanded storms. He fed multitudes with with just a, a simple little fish snack from Long John Silver's. Of y'all who indulge yourselves occasionally of long John Silvers, you know there's never ever enough of that greasy stuff in those little boxes or on that plate. And there wasn't that those times when the Lord took it and multiplied it as only God can do. In stooping down from heaven, he attached human flesh, nature, and will to his divinity. We testify of that when we use the Athanasian Creed. That historic creed of the fourth century that somehow or other the divine took flesh and didn't become less divine. He took human nature and didn't become less than divine nature. He took human will and didn't become less than divine will. if you don't sit and smoke that in your pipe over and over and over again, then you don't sit and ponder the wonder of who Jesus is nearly as much as you ought to. And none of us do. We're all guilty of failing to ponder who our great Jesus is, our great Savior is. Listen to this. In Paul's rendering and and attempt to explain this under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, that we're to have this mind among ourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, literally he was very God, did not count himself equal with God. He didn't think that was a thing to be grasped to be held on to but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form now he is the very thing of god and now he says we we read here that jesus was the very thing of humanity he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross therefore god has highly exalted him notice No cross, no exaltation. No cross, no glory. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this passage, we saw Jesus says, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, verse 23. Next week we'll take a look at this because on down a few verses, Jesus said, Father, save me from this hour, question mark, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, in the Son's being, name being glorified, in the Son being glorified, the Father is glorified. We just read it in Philippians chapter 2, right? Jesus, we just read it in John chapter 12. Shouldn't surprise us that the scripture is is in agreement with the scripture, should it. Scripture is the only best interpreter of scripture. The theology of the scripture is the is also the best interpreter of the scripture. We believe both. So Paul has said that Here's what John Jericho wrote. This glory, the Son of God consented to veil. Remember, he became as nothing. He was not esteemed. We esteemed him not, Isaiah 53 says. He was shapeless, without form. He, he wasn't a good looking guy. This glory the Son of God consented to veil when he humiliated himself and became incarnate that he might die for men. The intrinsic or essential glory, that is, the glory which attends his own contemplation of his being and character as God. Back to Philippians 2. He didn't think it a thing to be held on to, he was not selfish. This intrinsic, essential glory that he didn't think proper to hang on to can suffer no change. Nothing left him, nothing changed about his divinity, but his extrinsic and declarative glory. That is, the effulgent manifestation of his perfections, the reflection of his beauty, and the celebration of his praises by the universe of creatures, was mysteriously eclipsed and suspended by his incarnation by the wonderful connection of the divine nature with the human in a common relation to the personality of the great mediator. Is it any wonder that the Lord would pray in just a a few lines later, now is my soul troubled, what shall I say, Father save me from this hour? Essentially, no, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The voice came. I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. But you see, what's going on here is that during this time on earth, somehow mysteriously eclipsed and suspended by his incarnation, Every knee is not bowed, and every tongue is not confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the reality of his human life, isn't it, of his incarnate life, is that not everyone was singing his praises. And did you see the order that Paul brings us through there in Philippians chapter 2, after Christ has, has obeyed. He's taken human form but not given up his, his divinity. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has, subsequent to that, exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. Glorified the Son. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is because... That he, he, he took this posture in the incarnation. And during that time, there was no every knee, every tongue. There were some. And we've read about them. This book is about believing, right? John wrote it so that we might believe. And we've come over and over. John showing us. And some did. And some did. And some did. And some did. But not all, not all, not all. But there's coming a day. That the glorified Christ is going to come again, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because they will see him in the fullness of his glory, not in this veiled glory of his incarnation. But the veiled glory was essential in order to save us. Do you understand that? It wasn't essential to him, he was perfectly fine. In the heavens, at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. He was absolutely fine, satisfied, fulfilled as the second person of the Godhead. But he did it for us. He did it for us. He did it for sinners. Stop and think about that a moment. Think about your rotten, sorry life these last few days. I'm not belittling anyone. I just know my heart. I know your heart because I've read the Bible. He left glory and veiled his glory to where people didn't recognize him as God. They didn't praise him as God. They didn't fall before him as he walked the streets as God should be worshipped. And he did it for you and he did it for me to save sinners from their sins and to give them life and life abundant. That's what happened. It's no wonder then, as we'll see next week, that the Lord Lord has this question in his mind, as we see later in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if if, if it's possible, let this pass. It's no wonder he desired, however, that it not pass, but that he fulfill the work so that he might resume his place at the right hand of the Father, that he might enjoy what he had given up temporarily for us what he had been cheated of for us now very briefly point two glory is reflected in creation this is really brief but I suspect we overlook this truth over and over and over again There is a theological uh, reason for this that I will not go into. But historically, the church has not overlooked the truth of point two. Glory is reflected in creation. Psalm 19, the psalmist writing under the inspiration, silly psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seemed to think that the heavens declare the glory of God. And that men can look up into the heavens, they can look at creation, and they can see the hand of God in it. Paul believed the same thing. He said, yet they will choose to suppress it. That doesn't mean they didn't see it. You have to see something, you have to know something in order to suppress it. Is it any wonder that his handiwork is perfect for illustrating his fruitful work in redeeming the people. And that's exactly what he uses. He draws from horticulture from agriculture. Before Kaz went into this this study, I didn't know the difference between horticulture and agriculture, and I didn't understand anything hardly. But it's a magnificent, masterful world. All I'd ever done was put a tomato plant in the ground and fertilize it and water it and watch it grow and then eat those delicious fruit. Now, I know a whole lot more about them. It didn't help the taste of the tomato whatsoever. But I know more about it. Hey, there's an analogy in that, too. You will get to know Jesus more and more. You'll get to know more about the supreme work he did for you and for me on the cross and in the resurrection. And it won't change your saved status one little bit. But you'll, and, 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 you, and you won't in, perhaps enjoy your salvation anymore. But you'll know more about why he did it and how he did it. And that should drive us. That should drive us. We should train our minds. We should develop the discipline of connecting the creation dots to the creator and his person and his work. Parents, please. I'm so thankful that I married way over my head and that my wife knew the difference between flora and fauna. And I, now I do. I still can't identify everything like she can. But I know the difference. And I know that the design of creation points to a God who is only disclosed truly, perfectly, fully in the Holy Scriptures. Teach your children. Help them develop the discipline. I said that'd be brief. That's it. And then finally... Let's get to us. We've talked about Jesus, and that's what we should do. Jesus and his work. Do you notice what follows? If this grain of wheat, who is this very God of very God, if that grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it unless that happens, it remains alone. See, here's the problem, real quickly. The problem with this idea of, of liberal, progressive christianity is we need to live like jesus we need to follow the example of jesus we need to do justice like jesus we need and on and on this passage is again it folks if he had not died suffered and died and been buried nothing would have taken place he could have lived a perfect life as God, as the God man. He could have and would have and did, in fact, live a perfect life to no avail for us. He could have just been Enoch. And we'd all be lost in our sins. We'd still be under the penalty of sin. But he didn't, he died. Unless that wheat grain dies and it's placed in the ground, then there'd be no hope for us. There'd be no forgiveness of sins. There'd be no penalty taken away. But if it dies, notice what it says, it bears much fruit. Because Jesus died and rose from the ground. Because what happens when that seed dies in the ground? It sprouts. And there comes the corn, there comes the the tomato, there comes the okra, there comes the peppers, there comes the cotton, there comes the corn, there comes... You just keep going, right? That seed dies in the ground, then it shoots up, the resurrection comes, and there's the fruit. And we get to enjoy it. We get to enjoy the fruit. Whoever, here's the fruit, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's the fruit of Christ's work for us. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? Faith is a gift of God. Grace is a gift of God. If that's not true, if it's something I can do on my own, then I can boast somewhat about it. But Paul says that's not the case. There is no room for boasting because it's all from him. It is pure monergism. Only God can save sinners. And then what does verse 10 say? And we are workmanship of Christ Jesus, created in him unto good works which he ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. Unless that grain of wheat, Jesus Christ, had died and gone to the ground and been raised to bear fruit, there'd be no good works for us. There'd be nothing for us to do on this earth. We'd have nothing worthwhile to do. But because he died, we died in Christ, we are sprung up alive in this world to bear fruit. One last thing. Jesus, while on this earth, longed to be in glory, right? I mean, that's the established fact. He just said it, glorify me. The Father reminds him, I have, and I'm going to again. And yet, Jesus, being God and owning everything, And no doubt enjoying drink and food, everything to the fullest, because it's his and he loves it. He was not at home here. He was despised and stricken, smitten, not esteemed. Sounds like the church. Sounds like a faithful church. Not your ordinary, unfaithful church. Several months ago, and I'll end with this, we in the pastor's class read a little book by Ian Smith, Ian K. Smith. He's from down under. He wrote a wonderful little book called Not Home Yet. Jesus was not home yet, even though he owns it all. His home's at the right hand of God the Father, and he longed to return there. And if we're in Christ Jesus, if we have died in Christ, we are not home yet either. And we will long to be there. The Puritans had a way of saying it, that we're living this life of of service. We're living this life of, of hating this present life, the present life of this world. We have, we have a life of losing it, dying. And we're looking forward to a life that's better. We're not home yet. We have something better to look forward to. Now, we can enjoy this life because God gives us. All the blessings of this life. But we're not home yet. We're pilgrims. As the Puritans said, all we're doing on this earth is making us fit for glory. Do you live that way? Are you developing the discipline of dying to self so that you're making yourself more and more under the hand of the Holy Spirit? More and more fit for glory. That's the fruit of Christ's work, making us fit for glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your blessings to this, your word in our hearts, for giving us ears to hear as we leave. May we leave serving you, knowing full well that you, Father, will glorify and honor us. You'll make us more and more into the image of Christ. And we pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.